Hello, this is Key Ideas, and I'm your host, Leela Viss. Thanks for being here. This podcast contemplates the rhythm of life as a piano teacher and music maker. Through illuminating interviews and transparent reflections, you'll feel validated, encouraged, and empowered. This is episode number 60 and features part two of my interview with Dr. Vanessa Cornette. It picks up where we left off, so it's important to head back to episode number 59 if you haven't taken in all of Dr. Cornette's insight and advice about healthy disengagement. Make sure to catch her descriptions of disidentification affirmation and detaching with compassion. Especially as musicians, these mental frameworks could provide just the lift your self-compassion needs. In this second part of our conversation, Vanessa explains how to re-engage with resistance, like salmon swimming upstream. Personally, I've noticed that her timely and timeless wisdom in these two episodes has served as a tune-up for my emotional well-being. My guess is that it may do the same for you. By the end of this episode, you too will feel empowered with strategies to help you mindfully navigate your way upstream in this post-pandemic world. Hello, I'm back here with Vanessa, and we've been talking about disengagement. And the point being that there is a level of healthy disengagement. And then what are some tips now for us to re-engage into this post-pandemic world and not fall into the productivity treadmill and get stuck where we were before the pandemic? So we've been talking a lot about disengaging. And I think what's scary for most of us is if we disengage from something, what do we re-engage with? Mm -hmm. And I think when we're under a lot of stress and we've all been under chronic stress and trauma for many years now, um, it's, it's easy to think of leaving a situation, running from something, leaving a job, leaving a toxic environment, leaving, but it's harder to think, okay, I'm leaving this thing. Where am I going? Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden I'm, mm-hmm. I'm Dorothy on the yellow brick road and I've come to where the scarecrow is and the road goes in all directions and I just don't know where I'm going. So something I learned um, when I was doing a lot of research five or six years ago, I interviewed a number of sport psychologists who work with athletes some of them work with like orchestral musicians, but most of them just work with athletes. And I wanted to see how these sports psychologists help um, athletes sort of stay focused and develop resilience and stay in the zone. And I was so amazed at how much of the coaching had to do with going towards a specific goal. It wasn't even, I mean, yes, there was physical fitness and there was alignment and there was physical skill and there was mental skill, but it was always sort of keep your eyes on the prize. And so some of these sports psychologists would have their athletes articulate their goals every day and sometimes several times a day during, you know, uh, a session. And I started to think about how I teach and 
I used to be so proud of myself, Layla, that I would, at the beginning of every semester, I would have all of my piano majors articulate three goals for the semester. Okay. And after a while, it began that they had to articulate two specific musical goals and one specific mental goal. A lot of them want to work on stage fright or some of them want to work on, you know, whatever. Um, but then that was it. <laughs> like, and maybe at the end of the semester, I'd be like, so how did you do towards your goals? And what I learned from these sports psychologists is, no, first you you think about what you want, and then you come back to it every day. Why am I here? Why mm -hmm. am I sitting on this piano bench? Why am I passionate about this? And that has totally changed how I teach because now every two weeks, I have students re-articulate their goals and tell me what they have done towards those goals. And the reason why I'm telling you this story is because when we re-engage, we have to be pointed in some direction and we want to establish what direction that is. And if we don't know what we want or why we're doing this thing that we're doing, we don't know which direction we're going in. We're just going to get in that stream and just by default go, you know, wherever it happens to take us. So I think finding our purpose is one way that can really help us re-engage mindfully in a way that's meaningful to us. Well, let's talk about finding the purpose. And maybe that has something to do with our level of productivity or turning down the productivity. And I liked how you talked about that. Uh, you had an example of a social media app. <laughs> I don't know if you recall that. I do. And I, I think sometimes, remember. you know, we think, okay, well, if I'm going to reach a goal, then I have to do this, this, and this, and this, and you are flipping it 180 degrees. So talk about that just a little bit. I remember that app. I was on Instagram and I think many of your listeners, if they're on social media, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't remember the company, but it's one of those many productivity apps for oh, your yeah. smartphones. Mm -hmm. And it organizes all of your tasks into to-do list. And what I remember is the graphic, which was animated, showed, you know, this, this sort of color-coded uh, calendar of all of these tasks that were all jumbled. And in the animation, this app like puts them, you know, in order. And at the the sort of the tagline of the app was never feel overwhelmed again, <laughs> which was hilarious. Okay, yeah. And then under that, it said, even on days with 30 tasks and eight meetings oh and everybody, and there's all these likes and everybody's saying, Oh, this is fabulous. Oh, that's wonderful. But I remember that in this session I gave, what was so fascinating to me was not the company or the app or the marketing, it was how people were responding in the comments. And I remember I saved a screenshot of these. One person said, if you have eight meetings a day, find a new job. <laughs> and I remember another person, I saved this screenshot, commented, what if we don't want to get 25% more done? What mm -hmm. if we want rest and freedom from capitalism's commodification of our time and bodies? And wow. I thought my brain just exploded. And I was so pleased to see that resistance that we talked about last time going against the flow, resisting this sort of toxic culture of chronic busyness. So, mm -hmm. so that's the first step is recognizing that this is crazy town. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> never feel overwhelmed again with your 30 tasks and eight re that realizing that this is crazy. I don't want this. 
and you disengage and then you think, but what do I want? I can't stay disengaged. I'm a creative artist. I want to engage with something towards some goal. So (laughs) yeah, that cracked me up. I'm just so pleased when I see people standing up on social media and going, this is crazy. (laughs) One, it's going against the culture, which, you know, perhaps that is what you're talking about then for goals of engagement is limiting our engagement, perhaps. Limiting our engagement. And we've got all these productivity apps and all these to-do lists. And I I have yet to see it. Maybe it's out there and I don't know about it. Why isn't there an anti-productivity app? And why why don't we have a stop doing list? Like, Mm. why don't I have a list on my phone of all the things I'm doing right now that I'm not going to do anymore? (laughs) Because it sounds ridiculous. But we have to make time. We're only culturally conditioned to add more, add more, do more. But we're not conditioned. Well, how do you let go? Some things have Mm. to go. You know, you can't fit 50 more outfits in your closet. You have to take out some and give them away. How do we do that? Mm. I heard this phrase, which I really liked. Instead of thinking, let go, let it be, which is it's less of an action verb. Just let it be. There it goes off in the distance. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So now let's go back to your word purpose, because this is what really fascinated me about your talk as well, is you gave some really good actionable steps for, okay, if we have new goals of re-engaging in this post-pandemic world, we can follow some, basically three things. They are purpose, value, and mission. So what do you mean by, first of all, purpose? What Walk us through, like, what do you mean by a statement of purpose? What would that look like? Uh, so I started having my students do this, and I was surprised at how powerful this activity um, was. Um, so I keep coming back to this idea of, you know, I was never asked to articulate a statement of purpose as a musician ever, ever, not even in grad school. Like, nobody ever said... Oh, no. What drives you? What inspires you? So to me, a statement of purpose is answering the question, why? So the question might be, why do you perform music? Or why do you teach youngsters? Um, Or it might be, what? What inspires and drives you? What are you most passionate about? And so what I do is I have my students every semester sort of come up with a statement of purpose and they are supposed to write it at the top of their little practice journal so that they can look at it every day that they sit down to practice. Some of them put it on their, you know, computer screen or whatever Mm -hmm. so that they can see it because just because you articulate a purpose doesn't mean you'll remember it. You have to keep Mm -hmm coming back and thinking, this is why I'm here, especially when things get rough, when you have a meltdown in the practice room, when you think, why am I, I shouldn't even be here. And then you come back to your, to your statement of purpose. Now I'm thinking with little beginners, there's going to be a lot of teachers that have small beginners and a lot of them are going to be there because their parents signed them up for lessons. Mm -hmm. So how would you guide a youngster into thinking beyond, well, because my parents are here, how could, how could we help them think beyond that? reasoning? That's a great question. So for young students who are there because that's just what they're doing, um, they might not be there of their own volition, but chances are they don't hate music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have yet to meet a person, aside from a person who's been diagnosed with amusia, I have yet to find a person who hates 
music with a passion of a thousand white hot suns. So then you can ask a student, what do you love about music? What do you mm. like about piano? What do you enjoy? So you're kind of sort of guiding the question more specifically, but it might help a youngster instead of why are you here? <laughs> uh-huh. What do you love about what we're doing here? <laughs> oh, okay. I like right? that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Kind of getting into their bubble, into their world. Right. And for young people, um, something general can be very helpful, but also it can help to be very specific to each activity they're doing. So if they're working on a little piece in their method book and they aren't practicing it a whole lot, uh, maybe you play it for them and you brainstorm, what do we love about this piece? What is so cool about this piece? And that's what you write at the top of the piece in their book. Oh, I love the energy and I love the passion. I like when it gets loud towards the end. And so when they open their book and they're like, I don't want to practice this song, but they remind, they're reminded oh, this is why I like this thing. Or this is why I, it's going to be harder with scales and arpeggios and ear training, right? right? But it's going to be, but we can find ways to direct their attention in a positive way, realizing that no one else is doing this for them. They're not getting this at school. They're probably not getting this at home for somebody to say, why are you doing, what do you love about this? And then coming back to that really helps focus their attention, number one, but it helps them develop self-awareness because Mm. there are times when I say to myself, I have no idea why I'm doing this. I don't know. But the more I practice, the easier it gets to sort of decide. Nice, nice. Now, the second thing is then, Uh, describing core values, uh, having a statement of core values. So as a teacher or as an adult, give us some examples of what that might mean. Yeah, I wish somebody had mentioned core values to me when I was um, a grad student and I had my pedagogy classes and we're always asked to write a statement of teaching philosophy. And I always struggled with that because I just... I've got all of these philosophies, but if somebody had said, Vanessa, make sure you articulate your core values, that would have made my job so much easier because then I can think, what things do I value um, in what I'm doing? Or um, what things do I treasure most deeply? Or um, for teachers, um, what do I value in other musicians? We tend to teach towards what we value. Mm -hmm. If we value tone and expression above all other things, sometimes that's what gets the emphasis. If we value accuracy and ease of technique, that's what gets our attention, right? Mm -hmm. So actually articulating that can be helpful. And also if you're a student musician, um, what when I hear other musicians perform, what am I listening for? What am I valuing? And that can help focus practice or focus sort of a philosophy of why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's just Mm -hmm. fun to list those things. You know, what do I value? Um, Because you can also sort of distinguish what do I not value quite as much. And maybe for youngsters that may be listening to different types of music, what do you like? That could be part of help them target their values Right. Eventually, that it may not, they may be too young to describe them yet, but that could help what drive their course and their lessons and determine if you're the right teacher 
for them. Absolutely. And the younger you are and the less life experience you have, you might not know what is out there to be valued, right? So it might be hard to articulate those things. I teach every now and then I teach a music appreciation class at St. Thomas. And I really enjoy working with freshmen who are not music majors. They Mm. just want to learn about music. And so I always give them this uh, survey at the beginning of the semester. And part of the questions, one of the questions is, you know, what is your favorite type of music to listen to? And please list your favorite artists. And then I, why do you like this music? Okay. And then the next question is, please tell me about the music you dislike. Um, Styles, genres, what artists do you really hate? Can you articulate why you hate this music? And of course, this is very sneaky of me because what I do is I take their answers to the second question and I base their listening assignments around the music music that they say they hate because (laughs) in my experience they hate something because they haven't given it the time of day or they don't really understand it Mm -hmm. you know if you haven't really tried to understand viking death metal from scandinavia of course you're not (laughs) going to understand what's happening so sometimes if we have young students and you say what's your favorite kind of music um you can also see where the gaps are oh they've never played anything that's percussive or maybe they've never played anything that is uh unmetered and sort of free and so you can sort Mm -hmm. of fill in some gaps and help them develop more things that they treasure and value. Mm. I like that idea of just giving them a survey of, do you like this? Do you like this? And really that's going to hone their ears. It really is. And at least with my undergrad students, I, you know, get that survey before the first class. And then the music listening that I play in the first class meeting, I always start with someone who um, an artist that most people like and that some of them have have named and that really attracts their attention. And then the very next piece we listen to is by Nickelback or it'll be by Metallica or it'll be, uh, you know, Willie Nelson or some some by some artists that a couple people have said, I really don't like this music. And then we dig into how amazing this music really is. And then they have this like deer in the headlights look and they kind of walk out of my classroom like my world has been turned upside down. (laughs) And we can do that with young students too, who say, I don't want to do this, or I don't think this is cool. And we can show them how cool it really is. Nice. Mm, I like that example. Okay. So that was based around that core values. And maybe that's our job as teachers is to help them establish a core value system for music if they don't have one, because usually they don't. You're right. It's it's what they listen to at home. Right. So then your third item that you mentioned is uh, a mission. So developing a mission right. statement. Yes. So can you go into that just a little bit? Yeah, so this I learned maybe 10 years ago. I went to a faculty, uh, oh, the irony. I went to a faculty workshop on academic productivity, <laughs> thinking I'm going to okay. do more and accomplish more. Yes. And and the woman who led the seminar um, really kind of flipped my perspective upside down because she said, you can't do anything until you develop a personal mission statement. And I thought, I don't have a yeah, exactly. I don't have a personal mission statement. <laughs> and what blew my mind is she had us write these mission statements and then she said, "Look at your mission statement. Is it about your life or is it about your job?" And I was mm. of course all of us 
had written this mission about our job. And mm-hmm. so we all crumpled them up into a ball and threw them mm-hmm. across the room. And she said, try it again. What's your life mission? statement?" anyway, so I got really good at writing mission statements. And I realized this is helpful because it helps you take that the purpose that you've articulated and maybe those core values that you've come up with and put them into a statement that is action oriented, something that includes verbs, something that includes your values. So, and something that starts with I, and I have my students do that, you know, I, um, my mission is to do this, or I do this for the purpose of this. And it's just something really helpful to keep with you. And um, something that this lady said towards the end of our seminar, she said, now, just because you've written a mission statement doesn't mean you're going to keep it. You should redo it every year. Mm. And I thought, yeah, because we're different people every Mm. year. So I do walk my students through sort of a recipe for how to construct a mission statement using very, um, very meaningful, sexy words that sort of grip them and uh, make them come back to these sort of core values. I think it's just a really healthy activity for everyone. Oh, I when I listen to this, like, you know what, I need to do that. And then I could see why revisiting them would be a good idea. You you suggested that there's three sets of words that you need for your statements. You need action verbs and then people and then values. And then I, I thought maybe I'd be putting you on the spot. So I did write down the three mission statements that you shared because I love them <laughs> so much. But before I do that, can you, what do you mean by those three sets of words? Can you describe those? We'll be right back. As we approach a new year, why not start out with a bang and prep all your students to be the life of the party? In other words, teach them how to play Happy Birthday by ear and how to harmonize it. Now, skeptics have asked, why Happy Birthday? We usually just sing this without any help from the piano. Although that is true, this tune is ideal because every one of your students knows it. Happy Birthday is a gold mine for teaching nuggets like intervals, the key of F major, chords, harmonization, and so much more. And when your students go through the process of learning Happy Birthday, they can take these skills and apply them directly to any pop tune they wish to learn. You're giving them a gift that keeps on giving. If you're hesitant on how to go about this in your studio, I've recently updated my Perry's Party Piano Camp. Although it's a camp curriculum, the resource provides all the steps you need to follow for weekly, private, or group lessons. And with the updated version comes a brand new carefully edited video where you see me teach each step in real time. Use the discount code HAPPY23 for 23% off Perry's Party Piano Camp. Now, back to my conversation with Vanessa. What do you mean by those three sets of words? Can you describe those? Sure. So I, um, you know, when we first try to do anything as a teacher, the first attempts are pretty sloppy, at least if you're like me. So my first attempts at getting myself and students to write out a mission statement sort of ended up, I don't know, sloppy. So I found out that those three sets of words are really where we need to focus. The verbs are most important. That was the easiest. Um, But then the, and the idea that we would incorporate our values, but sometimes we need to, we have a mission towards 
who, who benefits from the fact that you're doing what you're doing? Is it you? Is it humanity? Is it your students? Is it your listeners? Um, so what I would have students first do is brainstorm a list of action verbs, um, like uh, things that you're passionate about, your purpose, your strengths, your intent, you know, all these things that I want to do as a musician, like I want to inspire, or I want to connect, or I want to communicate or educate, things like that. And then the second group of words, people, I ask my students who benefits from the fact that you are on this planet making music. Mm -hmm. And so my students will usually say things like uh, friends, community, um, listeners. When I work with teachers, usually the people are students, family, um, other artists, um, things like that. And then the third group of words is you pull from those core values and you pull words out of those core values, things that represent what matters most to you. This is so fun to come up with a list of words like what, okay, what matters the most to me? Is it creativity? Is it um, success? Is it freedom? Um, is it adventure? Is it accomplishment? You know, and sort of wordsmithing. I love words anyway, mm -hmm. but wordsmithing those down to a few values that you could put in a, a nice little uh, pithy um, mission statement. Well, here are your examples that you shared, which they were so fantastic. So, okay. Number one, statement number one, my mission is to inspire other human beings who seek connection and fulfillment. And the next one, my mission is to nurture listeners in order to bring about a universe of peace. And the last, I create art for the purpose of grand adventure. <laughs> yes, and those are not mine. Those are um, mission statements that I collected from students over the years. And that last one, grand adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I don't, I need to focus more on my grand adventure exactly. that I'm, I'm engaging in. <laughs> Off to the wild west. Here we go. Exactly. So how are these helpful? Okay. So we, we make one of these statements. Why is this a good thing? So there's two reasons to do this. The most valuable thing I think is simply in the process of doing it. You know, it, it's not, and I don't tell my students this, of course, but it's not to, it's not goal oriented. I'm done. I did the assignment, Dr. Cornette, and I turned it in on Canvas and I wrote my mission statement. It's struggling through the process mm -hmm. of finding wordsmithing and finding those values and process. Okay. So going through that process every year is what is inherently valuable. But the second way that this process is valuable, aside from just keeping us motivated when, you know, things are tricky, for me, it helps me make decisions, especially when I am invited to do something, just like you were invited recently to take a job that you decided against. And probably in your mind, it was going against whatever, you know, it was you wanted to do. But if somebody calls me up and says, hey, Vanessa, I would like to give you the opportunity. It's always an opportunity. Okay, now. Right, yes. You have this opportunity to go do this thing. And if I'm really busy and I think, I don't know if I want to go do the thing. If I look at my mission statement and I ask myself, if I do this thing, does it serve my, my life mission? Mm. If the answer is yes, I'm more likely to do it. And if the answer is no, it makes it so much easier to say no. So yes. if it's something that's very time consuming, that doesn't um, net uh, any profit, that is going to make me, you know, have to, you know, go out of my way to, and it doesn't fit my mission statement, it doesn't 
it doesn't lead me towards that grand adventure or it doesn't help me inspire other humans. Maybe it's just serving on a committee at work that doesn't really interest me or I just think it's going to, um, you know, use my use up all my time and energy. Then I'm able to say, no, I don't say, no, this doesn't mis- yeah. meet my mission statement, but but that does help me sort of decide how to use my time. You just gave me an idea about how to create my mission statement. I might have to just make a list of all the no's and the stop doings. <gasps> I think that could really help me corner what I really do like to do. Right? Yes. And that's why we need the stop doing list app. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you know, it's helpful. I'll tell you, and I'm sure that all of your listeners will totally understand this when I say this. One thing, two things that happen a lot in my job. One is I'm asked to find pianists and accompanists. And the other is I'm asked to find homes for people's pianos. Oh, right. So I get a lot, right? I get a lot oh, yeah. of emails. Oh, like, yeah. You know, I'm giving away my baby grant. I mean, not the scam emails. I mean, the actual, mm-hmm. I would like to donate a piano. But I also get a lot of, I need a last minute sub at this church service tomorrow. Can you find someone for me? And do you know, Layla, those are two items on my stop doing list. Yeah. <laughs> Because I don't have time for that. And so I write back and say, I am so sorry. I don't have anyone to recommend at this time because I put it on my stop doing list because I have to make space for all the other things that I want to do. Right. So I'm with you. I think the stop doing list Mm. helps us with the mission. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I do feel like, you know, that will tie in with my angst meter. If I have this core, these core values in this mission statement, Whatever gives me angst is not in alignment, right? Yes, with my mission statement. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow, I've got a good therapy session going here. (laughs) What do you charge per hour? (laughs) Okay. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, and maybe you know, this angst meter is a lot about emotions. And I liked what you said about emotions that they are going to arise, but they also you also mentioned that they they are rational. You know, a lot of times we think when we're emotional, we're being irrational. Yeah. But actually, there are gauges, right? They're a barometer. Right. They're telling us what's going on inside of us. Yeah, I I love the idea. And this is, of course, not my original idea. I love the idea that thoughts can be irrational, but emotions are never irrational. Mm. In, in mm. cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and I use this a lot with my students, we work with identifying and reframing irrational thoughts. Thoughts like, um, I'll never be able to play this piece, or I've got to get 100% on this test. You know, things that aren't logical and they don't, you know, they're not conducive to well being. But I heard a psychologist once in a conference session just make the offhand comment that, well, your emotions are never irrational. And then she just kept talking. And I thought, whoa, wait, wait, what? Wait. Let's unpack that. That's right. And here's why that's important. We are in this culture that suggests to us that we can change how we feel. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a wonderful quote by Eleanor Roosevelt that people, I think, mismanage. The original quote is something like, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Mm 
Mm. And I, and I think that's a lovely quote, but what I've been hearing in the past few years is speakers are twisting that and they'll say things like, no one can make you feel anything without your permission. And I just want to stand up and say, that's a lie because mm. emotions are biological. Emotions arise from what's happening in our environment, our thoughts, our situations, whether we're in danger, whether we're in trauma. So emotions act as gauges. Um, I Somebody, I was, oh gosh, this was pre-pandemic. So I was giving a talk to, uh, it was a, at a conference somewhere and somebody raised their hand and said something like, um, something like, but but nobody can make you feel anything, right? And in mm. the spur of the moment, the, the violent example I gave was, I said, you know what? What if I'm standing here talking to you? What if somebody runs through the door, takes a knife, stabs me in the leg, and then runs out? Yeah. Mm. I said, a bunch of you would probably rush here to see if I'm okay, but I don't think any one of you would say, well, Vanessa, no one can make you bleed yeah. without your permission right? So when we are attacked, when we're, you know, emotionally assaulted, of course, we're going to have emotional response. And the idea that you should be able to control your emotions is crap. So, <laughs> so I Thank do you. think yeah. emotions act as gauges, just like your angst meter. If I'm feeling upset about this student, or I'm feeling sad, or I'm feeling threatened, rather than me saying, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. Let's go to the happy place of toxic positivity and just find the silver lining. <clears throat> Instead, with mindfulness, I can say, okay, I'm having these feelings. These feelings are telling me something. What are they trying to tell me? I heard, um, I heard another speaker once talk about um, emotions are like a gas gauge on your car. And she said, you know, when you look at you're driving your car and you look and you see that the, the indicator is towards the E and your gas is almost empty, you don't get mad. You don't shout at the gas gauge. You don't say, how could you possibly be empty? What you do is say, oh, gosh, I need some gas. And you go to the gas station. And why can't we do that with our emotions? When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel uh, depressed or sad, why don't we say instead of you shouldn't be feeling these bad, nasty feelings? Why don't we say, gosh, Vanessa, this is showing me something. This is a gauge to show me that something in my environment is not good or not healthy or not functional. Um, and it's really helped me change the way I think about my emotions and practice a little self-compassion rather than judging how I'm feeling. Mm. I feel like you've moved into the question that I was going to ask you. So, you know, after our discussion of disengagement and re-engagement, um, how can we regulate and navigate our engagement in this post-pandemic world? And I feel like you've, you know, talked about that already where we listen to our emotions and I don't like the term silver linings. I will never like the term silver linings. Uh, and yet I think, you know, we can learn from what we've all been through. So do you want to talk a little bit on that? Absolutely. And I, oh, I have so many things to say. Let me just <laughs> say a couple things because, you know, time. Um, one thing I think the pandemic has taught us is how destructive what I call toxic positivity mm -hmm. can be. Mm -hmm. um, we still have it in our culture. We still are sort of conditioned to think and speak in a certain way. But this business of, you know, find a silver lining as you shelter in place, 
um, you 13 year old who happens to live in an abusive household and you don't have enough Wi-Fi to actually do your schoolwork. Like we can no longer say, find the silver lining of this place of trauma you find yourself in. And while finding silver linings can be helpful in certain situations, mindfulness can help us acknowledge negative situations and feelings without trying to put a positive spin on it. It takes out the butt. It's, well, I'm feeling really um, anxious right now. But if I do my deep breathing, I'll feel better tomorrow. We take out the butt and just leave it with, here's how I'm feeling right now. Um, something that also happens in my field of mindfulness and contemplative practices is related to toxic positivity. And it's something that I call spiritual bypassing. And mm. that's where we learn, we use a self-help technique or a spiritual technique as a way of bypassing those negative emotions. So if I say to my friend, oh, I'm so angry at my supervisor because he did this thing that impacted me negatively. And she says something like, well, you just need to feel compassion or well, you just need to clear your mind. <laughs> and I just kind of want to slap her face. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I didn't, but okay, yeah. But mindfulness tells us that's not the first step. The first step is you sit with that anger. You sit with mm -hmm. that anxiety. You you look at your gas gauge and sort of decide why you're feeling this way. And then maybe in a couple days, if you want to practice compassion or you want to act in a certain way, you can. But the idea with toxic positivity and spiritual bypassing is we're not disregarding our negative experiences because they are a part of our whole life experience. No one ever, we didn't come to this earth with a little manual and the manual, you know, the user's manual said, always try to have positive experiences and try to avoid negative experiences because it's just experiences. It's back to that non-judgment of John Kabat-Zinn. What happens, happens. Um, so I'm going to try to curtail my my discussion of that, how we navigate uh, sort of through this post pandemic world is through mindful awareness and with enough self-compassion to acknowledge our our state of mind and our emotions in the present moment. And rather than judge them or feel guilty about them, to acknowledge them and then say to ourselves, what do I do next? Not what do I do now? What I do mm. now is notice where I am right now, but what's my next step? Mm. Um, and I've often said that self-compassion is not for the faint of heart because it is one of the most difficult practices anyone can ever attempt to do in their lifetime is to keep coming back to the sense of I'm valuable and I'm worthy and I'm loved and I don't, I'm enough. I don't have to mm -hmm. do more and my feelings are valid and I'm just going to sit here and marinate in them for five minutes or whatever. So Two things that tie into that, that I learned probably at the right time in life was that you're good enough, even though there's a lot of religions that would say that, you know, you're different, but you are good enough, you know, and um, the other thing is never should on yourself. Yes. And <laughs> that has really helped me get rid of any guilt. I don't know. I don't, I don't harbor a lot of guilt. I just feel like that's a waste of time. Uh, worry is still something that, you know, comes around and of course anxiety so i've named them now so i think let's see anxiety is brunhilda and worry is frida so. <laughs> i love it there's a wonderful book called taming your gremlin <laughs> and it's by oh, funny 
I can't remember the, the, there's a, a psychologist who wrote it, but it's a wonderful book because, you know, he's a psychologist and he's talking about, you know, these internal gremlins they have, but what he has his patients do or his clients do is exactly what you've described. He has them give them names. And he, if he's working with children, he has them draw them like little monsters, oh, okay. like the, the guilt part of you maybe looks like, I don't know. He, and he has, he used to have a website where he would upload all of these drawings of people's inner gremlins and their names. And some of them are very, very funny. Some of them are very terrifying actually yeah, but yeah. but it's a way of externalizing mm-hmm. thoughts and emotions so you can see them as separate from you which of course they are mm-hmm. so I think that's brilliant I it's kind of thinking if the, if I name them then I can say oh well that's Brunhilde Brunhilde talking or that's Frida talking you know yes. um and that again that's that self-awareness right just being able to step aside and, and just kind of look at yourself in a different light Absolutely. And once you've externalized them and named them Brunhilde or whatever, then you can argue with them. And this is one way we sort of diffuse irrational thoughts. You have to dispute yourself. Well, it's hard to have an argument with yourself, but if you're sitting across from Brunhilde and she has like a little hat with a flower sticking out of it, and you can say, why are you doing this? You're making no sense. And you can kind of state your case. That's it sounds crazy, yeah. but it's actually really helpful way of navigating those emotions. So I so think your advice really- is do this in a small room or in the bathroom, <laughs> in the shower, not in the airport. Yeah. That's right. right. Yes. Yeah. There you go. So uh, let's close this off by, I, I really liked the questions that you asked at the end, and maybe it's not a question. It's just a statement for us to fill in the blanks. So COVID-19 pandemic signaled the end of what? for you. And COVID-19 pandemic signaled the beginning of what for you. And I really liked that because I feel like that those are questions that resonate with me. I don't think I have the exact answers, but I know one of them, like I stopped going to my gym where it was so busy that I had to go 30 minutes ahead of time and save my spot. And like, wow, that was a whole bunch of wasted time and I can get free videos online. And, you know, like that's, I know that's a very concrete thing, but I'm never going back to that anymore. Do you have anything personally that you have in your life that sig- signaled a beginning or an end? Boy, that's an excellent question. And that those questions that I closed with actually came from another speaker that I heard at the MTNA conference, Linda Cocky, oh, who's a okay. pioneer in health and wellness. And in her session, she pointed out that often we have these upheavals in our culture and it signifies a cultural shift. And she gave three examples. One was the black plague in the 14th century. And she made the the point that we went through this, you know, black death and that sort of precipitated the end of feudalism. Okay. So our, our political system shifted. And then she gave the example of the French revolution and how that sort of redefined political power. And then she gave the example I think she gave the flu pandemic of the early 1900s. I think so, yeah. And mm-hmm. made the case for the the US women's movement sort of came about mm-hmm. after that and it really got me thinking. Well, this COVID pandemic has been this in huge global upheaval. I, I would love to see culturally what it's signaling the end and the beginning of and I don't know if we'll see that, but personally for me my examples are a lot like your gym example in that there were things that I was doing. It was causing me a lot of time and effort and anxiety. And I didn't even realize it until I 
stopped doing it. <laughs> right. So even uh -huh. things like there was one Christmas where I couldn't go Christmas shopping. And, you know, I live 10 minutes from the mall of America, which is the biggest mall in the right. North America or oh something my, like that. Yeah. So Christmas shopping is just, you know, ridiculous ridiculous and you you navigate these crowds and it's so much money and it's focusing on you know just capitalism and mm -hmm. and so I rethought how I did holidays I mean yes you can order stuff online but I started doing more um, my gifts to, um, not last year but the year before were all gift certificates um for charitable work that I did. Like nice. my gifts were you donated the following items to neighbors Inc in Dakota County, or you, so it made me rethink of these sort of capitalistic things we do that we don't really need to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, so for me, it was a lot of like actual things like that, but for me, it really signaled the end of allowing my time to be colonized, not mm -hmm. just by my employer, but by my culture. So my mm -hmm. time and attention, I, it, for me, it signaled the beginning of mindfulness as resistance mm -hmm. or not doing instead of doing as a form of counterculture that I, not only am I going to swim against this stream of you have to be busy and you have to be productive and you have to be useful. Um, but I'm going to sort of act out my civil disobedience um, <laughs> by resisting this, not just for my own mental health, but for cultural health, I think, so that I can say that's all fine and good Instagram apps, but my, present moment right now is more valuable than anything you have to offer me. Mm. Just this right here, right now, being alive, seeing what I'm seeing and smelling what I'm smelling and talking to my friend online is more valuable than anything else I could be doing right mm. now. And I just hope, Layla, I mm. hope I can sustain that because it sounds so great. Um, it's just the way I, I think it's the way forward. I certainly hope so. I, I do feel that it, it feels like we're in a clutter free zone or we were for just a little bit, you know, and now we could easily let all that clutter come back in. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. It would be so easy to default to what it was, which comes back to our conversation of we shouldn't go back to normal if normal was never functional to begin with. Right. We need to learn to be still and to listen rather than to be busy and keep producing sometime. Mm -hmm. And you know, that word new normal, that phrase new normal, that one drives me bananas as well, because you know, what does that mean? Does that mean an, a new and improved or new and busier? I don't know, you know, but um, I think, yeah, it's, it's been a good time for us to step back and look and at, at our priorities. The word normal is a problem to begin with because for something to be normal, that infers that something else has to be abnormal, yeah, right? right? Yes. So if you go against the grain, you're abnormal, you're right. dysfunctional. You're, and I just think, I don't know, maybe if we didn't catalog things as normal or abnormal, they would just be what they are. I was going to say, there's no such thing as a normal day, right? There's That's always right. going to be glitches or something, right? That's right. 
Uh, well, obviously we could just go on and on, Vanessa, but I, I've taken up enough of your time. I've cluttered it up just a little ah! bit, but we so appreciate you. Ah. Oh my goodness. It's been such a treat. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. And before you leave though, do you have one favorite quote? I know you have tons. The Mindful Musician, your book just has amazing quotes in it. Um, but do you have one off the top of the head, top of I, your head that you could share? Sh- sure. And I do collect amazing quotes. Mm-hmm. I just, when I love words and when I hear something phenomenal, I write it down and yes, I mm-hmm. stuff them in my book and I used to put them on Instagram. And, um, but if somebody just asked me just to pull a quote out of the blue, I always like to pull something by a musician for other musicians. And mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix actually comes to mind. I have in my office sort of a little wooden um, quote that my students look at when they're sitting at the piano. And Jimi Hendrix said, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. Mm -hmm. And I love that, especially as a teacher, as I'm imparting knowledge, right? If I remind myself, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens, Mm -hmm. I navigate my surroundings a little bit differently. Nice. A good friend of mine says, use words when you have to. (laughs) But only when. (laughs) Yeah, Uh only when. Yes. Oh, Vanessa, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. We have learned so much from you and I'm inspired. I really want to work on a life mission statement. And I think it may even help me, you know, revisit my present teaching statement, which I think we all should do every year. You know, I thought that, no, I can't change that. But yes, you can, because we all change, even though we think we don't, right? Yes. Right. So thank you so much again for everything. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a delight. And I just really appreciate your time and the opportunity to talk about all the amazing fun things there are to talk about. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. Sigh. It's over. Could you listen to Vanessa all day? I know I could. If so, then make sure to grab a copy of her book, The Mindful Musician, so you can continue to learn from her. The link to the book and Perry's Party Piano Camp are in the show notes. This is Key Ideas, and I'm Leela Viss. See you in the trenches swimming upstream through a post-pandemic world.